there, and welcome to another episode of Scopophilia, the podcast. We are the millennial movie movement, and I, of course, am your host, Becky Teller, back at you with another edition to our summer session. And like I've said before, we are learning about the film industry. We are learning about the behind the scenes and we are on the beach. We are out doing things. We are in our cars with the windows down in a heat wave. Uh, If you are on the East Coast, you will know there is a heat wave, and I'm sure all over the country we are understanding that uh, it's summer, and uh, summer has come with a vengeance uh, over here, and I can't speak for other states, but New Jersey is hot. It is hot and humid, but you know what takes my mind off the heat and the humidity and any unpleasant weather is this podcast and its film. And it's learning about film on this podcast, which I am continuing to do. As somebody who did a stint in film school, who wanted to learn all she could, I am still learning more about the film industry, which is why I am seriously digging this mini summer session extravaganza here on Scopophilia. And this week is no different because we are getting into some interesting elements of film with our special guest today, Jason Valentine. Now, if you don't immediately know his name, know this. He has worked on Wish You Were Here, which was in a Sundance selection in 2012. He's worked on the newest Great Gatsby. He has worked on the both of the newest It movies. He has most recently worked on The Kingsman, the newest addition into the Kingsman, Kingsman, <laughs> into the Kingsman movie universe. Now, if you're not familiar with any of those, then you've been hiding under a rock and you need to watch all of them immediately. <laughs> but he is a film editor. And I'll be honest, I thought I knew a lot about film editing, but, uh, I was wrong once again. And so we are learning about film editing from the one and only Jason Ballantyne, who has had an incredible body of work and has so many interesting things to say about his career. So without further ado, my interview with Jason Ballantyne about his career as a film editor. Enjoy. Scopophilia, it's the newest thing to hit the market. Defined as deriving aesthetic pleasure from looking at something, it's the new craze sweeping the nation. Taken in large doses, side effects can include an addictive nature to have more film content. If this increase occurs, consult no one and keep listening. Scopophiliacs, and welcome back to another episode of Scopophilia, the summer session. And I'm so excited to have in our virtual studio today, Jason Valentine, who is a film editor with quite an impressive career, if I do say so. And so first and foremost, how are you? How are you doing? You're working, obviously. I mean, how are you doing in life? (laughs) 
Uh, really great. Thanks, Becky. Thank, thanks for having me today. Um, everything's good. I mean, you know, it's certainly nice to be working now post-COVID because uh, COVID itself, of course, um, caused a whole heap of challenges for all of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, I mean, what, just to touch on COVID, like very briefly, what was that like? I mean, was it, it I, I'm assuming that your job isn't something that like you can do at home per se, or, or could you? <laughs> well, th- that's a great point. Up until COVID, it was, you know, considered that we couldn't really do it from home, but, um, but with the limitations imposed, um, everyone discovered that they could <laughs> and, uh, and technologies were developed and, you know, systems for video chatting with your director to talk about cuts and have secure means for, uh, for sending your edits over the internet, um, like live streaming even. Um, so that there could be an interaction and a collaboration could continue. Um, so yeah, the, it, it all worked out. I mean, the, the, of course, I'm not talking anything of the personal aspects to people's lives and how that was affected. But from a business standpoint, um, uh, I think it was good. It, it enabled me to be home for um, dinners and, or in fact, it enabled me to be home for every meal of the day with the children. <laughs> um, so that was a good thing. And uh, although, you know, fighting for bandwidth with me trying to talk to my director <laughs> and, and the three children on Zoom um, was, yeah, they were, they were uh, a bandwidth challenge. But, um, but yeah, the technology uh, facilitated what was required. And um, I did have an unemployment period, um, which uh, wasn't desired. Uh, you know, it was an enforced period while pretty much the entire world globally shut down for, um, right. for film production. Um, I just finished a film in London, uh, The Kingsman, uh, so that came to a natural close. Um, so at the beginning of COVID, you know, it was wonderful. I'd been away for six months from home, family, and so it was really nice to just have concentrated time with them. But uh, when it turned into the third, fourth, and fifth month of unemployment, <laughs> then, um, you know, it was creatively challenging and, and wasn't where, you know, personally wanted to be career-wise. Um, so then I did two films. Um, solely cutting at home um, to their completion, and and now the current film, The Flash, is uh, where um, we're back at uh, on the lot at Warner Brothers in Burbank, um, mainly just through uh, securities of um, of uh, the material that um, mm. yeah, Warner's are understandably would be nervous about having their their images at, in somebody's house. <laughs> <laughs> right, absolutely. Well, I mean, I'm I'm so interested to you know break break open, you know, all the films that you've done, but for people who are not, you know, maybe well-versed in, in the cinema world behind the scenes things, you know, tell me a little bit, you know, what is it to be an editor in you? Like, what is your day-to-day kind of like? Yeah, for sure, Becky. An editor, there's, there's three distinct processes. I think three phases of, of the editing process. There's um, the editor's involvement during production, which is meaning during the shoot the editor's role during the director's cut and then um, beyond the director's cut where it starts getting into studio notes and audience feedback. So uh, those three phases are principally divided by two terms. There's the production and then post-production. The beginning of the director's cut is the beginning of post-production. And so just talking on the production side of things, um, an editor's role I think is really being an insurance policy for the production that is checking that, you know, whether it's negative or digitally acquired, that that all the camera rolls are accounted for, particularly with digital formats where the 
the camera cards are literally erased <laughs> and then um, and then used again. So so we want to make sure from the cutting room standpoint that all the backups of the media is you know true and some check that it's you know digitally fine. There's no um, no problems with the archive. And then aside from the technical considerations, the creative considerations is you know h- how's it coming together. So I'll sort of do a, a, a rougher sense of assembly, which can um, inform us of coverage. Um, it can help maybe isolate um, performance as well. Maybe there's a, um, a cast member that might need um, further direction or in worst case scenario, replacement. <laughs> uh, but it's, you know, the, the assemblies are informative for the director. It's a, it's a support a support vehicle to give them the confidence that everything's coming together in the, in the, in the manner that they um, have in their head. And then, of course, while you have the shooting crew and the sets and the cast, as I said, if there is any requirements for any pickup shots, it might be, you know, an insert of the, the watch on somebody's arm or whatever, <laughs> usually performed by a stand-in anyway. But, but right. um, uh, you know, it could, it, it's, it's just that information um, that uh, is I- ensuring that we have all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle um, so that when we get into post-production, you know, in, 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 the, in that moment, we think we have everything that we need. Um, but, of course, in post-production, the, the second uh, large phase is... Um, is is a journey you know it's a it's a it's a discovery and and uh, intent changes you know i say a good read um, is not a good watch so the editor simply just assembling the script uh, doesn't always mean it's um uh, a beautifully paced film <laughs> and it's quite interesting through your um your sensibilities watching an assembly how how the story has taken a whole new life because suddenly it's visually represented and of course the cast members are bringing um all of their wonders to the performance and the character and you know lifting it off the page the costume design production design um the director of photography lighting um so all of those other creative uh, uh contributions to the film all culminate into uh, the the image that I get to watch and during the uh, shoot process, I'll be assembling what I interpret of the script and what I think the director wants. Generally, they're too busy to give too much recourse to how the assembly is going. Their, their focus is, of course, um, on what they're shooting and what they need to prepare for the following day. Mm. Uh, however, for the directors that I've worked with, they seem to like uh, weekly assemblies. So every Friday night, we um, put together the week's assemblies and it becomes a you know, continuous, uh, continuously growing and expanding uh, portion of the film. And we have uh, secure online systems that we can upload the edits. And should the director choose on a weekend, um, they can, you know, review. Um, it might help inform them of what they're shooting the following week. Um, but it also becomes um, reference points for uh, script supervisors, continuity, um, you know, if there's any reference to what was the um, cast member holding the glass in their left or their right hand when it comes to doing inserts <laughs> um, a couple months later and things like that. Right. And so, yeah, Becky, that's, you know, that's the super broad outline <laughs> of how the editor participates during the during the shoot and, and, and post-production, I guess, is possibly um, a little more self-evident um, mm. as to the participation, yeah. Well, I mean, it's super interesting. And, and like, I've always wondered, you know, where does the editor come in? Because I feel like a lot of people think like once everything's shot, that's when the editor comes in, but that doesn't sound like that's the case. It kind of sounds like you're involved 
from the beginning of shooting to just make sure that like things are going well. Oh yeah, definitely, Becky. I- Pre-production, I'm not really involved with. It, depending, you know, your existing relationship with the director, you you may be given the script and they may be willing to, you know, take on your thoughts and things like that. That's a, you know, that's sort of somebody else's department in a sense. I mean, if the if the opportunity arises and I have a strong feeling or or an idea, you know, I I'm, I might present it, but. But there's so many people in the director's ear at that point. I mean, obviously their relationship is first with the uh, with the writer, mm. but then you know the studio's weighing in on what they require of the script to be saleable. <laughs> <laughs> you know those kind of elements. So you know there, there's yeah there's there's plenty of other um, uh, opinions at that point that I'm not really involved. But as I said, you know the the editor being involved from shoot day one is critical um, for all of those insurance insurance and assurance. <laughs> but the other thing, Becky, is you know it takes it, it takes me as long to watch and learn and understand the the dailies, the the rushes. So if if they shot for 50 days, I can't start editing until I'm familiar with what we have. So if if we were to not in, um, uh, involve the editor in the shoot period and had them start the first day after shoot, then it would take me 50 days after shoot just to watch what was shot to then start um, right. formulating an assembly. So as well as the immediacy of the feedback from the editor for all of those really important things that we spoke about before, um, it just makes sense for the editor to watch it as it's shot because um for my collaboration and participation down the line, I, I have to have the same familiarity of of what was shot as as the director has, and so I can only play ball if if uh, if I feel as versed in the elements as as they are. So that that's you know that that's an important reason why um, from from my standpoint why I have to be employed from shoot day one I mean you know you usually employed a week prior to shoot or whatever just to do a pipeline tests where the camera department will shoot a you know a clip and it'll be have some sync sound and test whatever your whatever your processes is to um, to get the offline material available to edit but the assistant editor usually um, takes most of uh, that responsibility in the checking yeah Great. Well, and I mean, it's, I, you know, you sent me over, you know, a one sheet of, of the projects that you've been a part of and incredible first and foremost. Um, I, I was reading it and I was like, wow, like I knew a few of the movies that you had done and I'm reading it more and more. And I'm like, I love a lot of these movies and they're beautiful. Uh, so, I mean, what, how did, how did you get to this point? I mean, what was it that happened? Did you always want to be an editor? Were you interested in film? You know, where was the kind of catalyst for you to get here, I guess is the kind of question. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. I don't know, Becky, like I I can recollect now always having an interest in watching movies. Um, mm-hmm. But of course, you know, I am a little bit older than the the uh, accessibility of movies today. Um, so, that, you know, there was a period that the only opportunity of seeing movies was um, in a movie theatre. And then, of course, there was the advent of uh, VHS, which um, was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to have the movie in your home and to be able to watch it when you choose. So that, that you know, the, the birth of VHS for home viewing was, um, was sensational. 
um, because you could uh, watch a movie on your terms, you know, in, in your time and, and the availability of the films was a, it was um, a lot more accessible that they were just sitting on a, a store shelf as opposed to being at the, uh, the whim of, um, of, a, of a cinema's schedule. And, of course, if a film had passed its um, theatrical release period, then unless it was a particular standout film, then it was very difficult to ever get a chance to see it. So when I, you know, reflect now, I can see an interest in filmmaking. Um, however, I never really acknowledged or stopped to understand or even could reason that that it could be a viable, employable role. <laughs> right. <laughs> that you could actually make the money <laughs> off it. It was, I don't know, I, I, I guess, I, you know, young enough at one point to not ever really stop to think about the, the machination. And then, of course, you know, with, with DVDs, it was a wonderful opportunity where um, studios would put a bit more effort into behind the scenes and have director commentary or, or you know, those kind of channels that you could turn on and off or, you know, even just behind the scenes videos were, you know, really informative. And uh, fortunately, you know, that, that um, era was around the time that I started to get interested in filmmaking. Uh, but from my, my educational standpoint, I, you know, just did high school and then uh, went into university and did a four-year Bachelor of Arts in Visual Arts, which is really a, a very broad dip your toe in the arts. It was, <laughs> you know, everything from finger painting to uh, macrame, um, uh, <laughs> kind of making jokes. But, yeah, I really I knew I just wanted to do something in the arts. I was kind of interested in, um, in uh, photography, hand drawing. You know, I even thought maybe cartoonistry would be an interesting field. So it really was fishing somewhere in the big pool hadn't really been introduced even to the idea of filmmaking and then the university had an introductory um, introduction course to film and video and it was through that course that we were um, asked to make short films and I happened to win two consecutive years of a short filmmaking contest just you know only very locally kind of thing yeah but the nice thing of that is that it um led to work experience in a post-production facility they were um, specializing in television commercials and that's when I really was met the first professional editors that I could really appreciate the the power of the manipulation <laughs> that particularly in these commercials where uh, uh they're short sharp shoots and and they have um direct intent of message or product selling whatever the angle is and it was just really nice to see uh just to see their work and then the probably the greatest um fortune i had in terms of a a, a breakout opportunity was avid media composer was introduced and at that point in time it was um one inch um videotape editing and because all of those um editors were too valuable for the company in terms of um, income source and i was literally termed the king dubber so i had a vhs <laughs> bank of 20 VHSs with one remote control and thought I was pretty clever to be able to, you know, pause and stop them all at the same ah. time through one remote, <laughs> just doing, you know, duplications of a product. And so they said to me, you know, hey, hey, you, the young guy, do you want to, um, do you want to learn this system called Avid? And so I basically read the manual and learned how to, um, press the buttons, but, um, <laughs> but that didn't give me any creative learnings. It was a technical operational side, but then I used to be, um, uh, to operate for local editors and directors. And so it was through being in the room that I could hear the terminologies and they, and witness their collaborations and start to learn the etiquette of the cutting room and how you should operate. And then that led to, you know, small opportunities of, of doing localized 
television commercials. And, and then I did a, a television miniseries, which was my first opportunity as an assistant editor to witness long format. And that was, that was a huge penny drop that uh, what felt like the commercial industry of a lot of people justifying roles, <laughs> the long format world was a lot of people in a in a unified sense working for one good cause and so i really love i really love that collaborative sense that you know there wasn't an agency executive coming in just to mess things up for the sake that their power allows them to but we had all these crew members all freelancers you know all working for one goal and then when that project finished you know everyone goes and moves on to the next and you know you the the strength of your contacts and you know they there's the term you're only as good as your last job. Um, and that's true, you know, especially in this freelancing world of, of moving forward. Anyway, so then, um, so that mini series made me realize that um, long format projects were the great. And then I had my uh, first feature film opportunity as an assistant editor, which was Babe, uh, the talking pig. Yes. Um, <laughs> and that, that was, uh, that was, that was, everything that was just such a wonderful experience it did mean that i had to um move from home to um to another city this is back in australia mm-hmm. and that happened to be around the the era for, in sydney uh when fox studios opened up shooting studios and and that was um a big impetus for american productions to come to town because the uh, australian to us dollar exchange rate was uh, very favorable for americans and so they were getting um not only government rebates and tax incentives for shooting in, a, in Sydney, but they're also getting the benefit of, of the exchange rate too. So that gave birth to a huge opportunity of international credits um, as an assistant editor. And I dare say that that having grown up in the backwaters of Australia, the collecting credits has been a, um, a less competitive environment than had I been born in Los Angeles, for example. Right, right. That's, I mean... Talk about, I mean, you're only as good as your last project. I mean, the some of the projects that you've worked on are incredible. I mean, just, I mean, one of the things that caught my eye instantly was you've worked on both of the new It movies, which, I mean, they're phenomenal as somebody no, who cool, loves the original. But yeah, it's absolutely stunning, that film. And I mean, so you have a very diverse amount of projects. And so is there like something in each project that like you're looking for? Or is there like a certain amount of projects that, you know, you're more drawn to than others? You know, what, what is that process like? Do you get approached? Do you seek out? You know, how does that kind of work? Um, so I guess, Becky, you know, it, the, you know, it's, it's a wonderful question and and it's um different for everyone but it's usually the first question you know that is relevant for everyone too so the the biggest hurdle that i faced in my career the first biggest hurdle <laughs> was um the transition from assistant editor to editor mm. so so for your listeners you know to understand the assistant editor is um is a cr- a critical key component of the cutting room that their role generally is more technically based. It may involve, you know, scheduling and, and those kind of components to the cutting room. But principally, they're making sure that the uh, the dailies are, you know, all sunk and available and everything's accounted for for the editor and presented in a manner that the editor likes to work. So there's a lot of comfort, for example, in in having a familiar relationship with my assistant editor because it's not reinventing the wheel at the beginning of each project. They've there becomes um, a known collaboration that that we can just do our job knowing you know how each of us like to work 
so you know that that was the biggest hurdle and then and then when you do start editing i can definitely look back at that period and see that it really was more about quantity than quality <laughs> and <laughs> and the and the truth is that you know i i wasn't really given a whole heap of choice i was kind of grateful if there was one film to edit you know it, it, I, I didn't really have an opportunity of there were two and what one am i going to pick mm. especially in australia it's a a, a tiny um, industry, government relied um, reliance um, upon funding. Um, outside of the American films, as I was mentioning, that come that used to come to town or still come to town, I'm not there. <laughs> the American crews obviously were bigger budgets, and therefore they usually came with their prearranged collaborations of director and editor. So there were no editing opportunities on those films. There were assistant editor opportunities because the the government required a local employment component for those films. So that's, right. as I was mentioning before, an opportunity of getting on board. You know, some wonderful films. It was Star Wars Episode 2 and Episode 3 as a as a local hire just for the shoot period. Same with Mission Impossible 2 and uh, I can't remember any of the others. <laughs> um, and then, <laughs> and then uh, local directors, Australian directors, uh, like Baz Luhrmann, for example, with Moulin Rouge mm-hmm. in Australia, which then led to, um, you know, through that, through that, a collaboration or an opportunity to co-edit The Great Gatsby with um, with uh, my best friend of the time, <laughs> uh, Matt Villa. And so that was really nice. Um, yeah, you know, that was a great movie. opportunity. Yeah, stunning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, Baz is you know, amazing. In fact, the ma- the editor that I mentioned then, Matt, is currently cutting Baz's Elvis, which is um, in production. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then um, the, the biggest breakout for me was Wolf Creek, which was a, a low-budget Australian film that uh, was the first Australian film to get into Sundance and Cannes Film Festivals. And from there, um, an American agent literally called out of the blue to ask if I would like US representation for basically getting jobs. But, of course, there was the uh, the hurdle of um, legally being able to work in America, so I had to um, go through um, getting a work permit, which was called an O-1 for um, Australians in America. Um, <laughs> and that was really, uh, it, in fact, its official title um, always made me laugh. It was an alien of extraordinary ability. Um, so that I kind of I kind of really enjoyed that title. <laughs> anyway, the, actually, there were the other... Um, the other thing that I have missed is during those assistant editor days, there were uh, times of either, as I said, the American film shooting in Australia, and maybe I would follow them back for a short period just to do a handover to um, to a, a local American assistant editor. But then there were also opportunities where the Australian films were shooting in America. And so I would get to follow those Australian crews over to the US. And so I did a film with an Australian director called Scott Hicks. Um, his film was Hearts in Atlantis with Anthony Hopkins. We shot in Richmond, Virginia. And that was that was truly a, a magic experience of, uh, and a lot of post-production that was with Castle Rock was back in Los Angeles. So that gave me a real opportunity of feeling America out as a, as a possible home of the future. It was a long period there. And, and then um, uh, when the editing role started uh, there was a film called Prom Night um, which was with Screen Gems and that that although you know the film caliber is questionable <laughs> um, the the opportunity the opportunity mm-hmm. was fantastic because it was the first job where I'd actually been employed to work overseas where my nationality where my tax rebate <laughs> wasn't a consideration and so it was nice for that you know opportunity so yeah Becky you know every every film has um, its great 
sides and every film has, you know, its challenges and some are more challenging than others and, and some are more fun than others. But each were chosen for a reason, whether that that reason was restricted <laughs> in terms <laughs> of choice or, mm-hmm. or whether it was chosen um, through uh, director, you know, wanting to maintain director collaborations or, or the opportunities or merely just recognising as, as every opportunity is really, um, it's, it's all a stepping stone. It's all, yeah, it's, it's, it's that, you know, that magic snowball that just keeps building and building as it rolls down the hill of your career. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, you always hope to be moving forward and, yeah, it doesn't always play out that way. Sometimes there's a few little sidesteps, but, but by and large you're hoping it's, um, yeah, leaps forward. Absolutely. A huge thank you to Jason Valentine for coming on the show for part one of his interview about his fabulous and interesting career as a film editor, as an assistant film editor. And and this is just the first part. There's more to come. Um, but of course, if you like this episode and you want more, we of course have our other episodes from the summer session so far. We have seasons one and two. And If that's not enough for you, which I understand, like, I need more too, (laughs) you can always follow us on Instagram at scopophilia underscore podcast, or you can check out our TikTok at scopophilia the podcast for more content. I'm updating as much as I can over the summer, and, and of course... How could I forget? But if you've forgotten, we do also have merch out there and about. We have tote bags, we have hats, we have shirts, all sporting the Scopophilia brand and logo. You can, of course, find the link for our merch in our Instagram bio, as well as going straight to ncpodcasts/scopophilia. It's our whole page with everything you need to know about the show, plus where you can buy merch. And, you know, it just classes up your look as you're doing your day-to-day. If you're going to work, if you're doing a Zoom call, if you're going to the store, all those things, Scopophilia merch is always classy. And, of course, since you're on the internet looking at all of these great things and resources, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show because it helps us out a lot, and I love to hear from you guys, as always. But, you know, don't keep the show a secret. Make sure that you are telling your friends and your family and your family of friends and your friends of family about the show because we love keeping up the discussion about movies and making movies and everything in between. As always, I'm your host, Becky Teller, leading the millennial movie movement here on Scopophilia, and I will see you for part two of this episode next Friday. Bye!